0: We started a series some weeks ago on reigning in life. And we're using as a text scripture Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. Maybe we ought to back up to verse 12 and read this in context. Paul writing by the Holy Ghost said, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all that have sinned, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that is to come. Now, you can readily see that he's not talking about physical death because in uh, uh, verse uh, 14, he's talking about a cessation or a change in death's reign when Moses came along. Well, physical death didn't change with Moses. Well, what changed? What changed was God instituted the law. He instituted the sacrifice so that man had an opportunity to free himself temporarily one year at a time from the rule of death, spiritual death. So the death he's talking about that entered into the world is not physical death. Certainly physical death was a byproduct of it, but he's talking about spiritual death. Adam didn't die for 930 years uh, till 930 years after he sinned. It took, think about that, think about the strength of the life of God that was in him when he was created. It took 930 years for physical death to overtake him. But spiritual death entered into the world through Adam's sin, through Adam's transgression. But with Moses, things changed. And it was a temporary change. It wasn't an eternal change. But it tells us, the death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the same way that Adam sinned, who is the figure of him that is to come. In other words, he's introducing, Paul by the Holy Ghost is introducing God's two-man theory. Adam was the first man and his actions counted for all of mankind, but he was also a figure or a type of the second man to come whose actions would would uh, uh, control or whose actions would uh, impact all of mankind. That second man was Jesus. So Adam is a figure or a type of Jesus, the Bible is telling us. Verse 15, for not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one Adam, many be dead, much more. The grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as it was by one Adam that sinned, So is the gift for the judgment was by one, Adam, to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses under justification. In other words, he's saying Jesus not only for the sin that Adam committed, but for all of the sins of mankind. Adam's sin covered one action. Jesus' sin covers many actions under justification. Verse 17. For if by one man's, Adam's, offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now, folks, without any dispute, if we took this verse out of context, if we read it in context, no matter what denominational background or religious background somebody's coming from, without dispute, if the words mean what they say, then we have to conclude that God intends for man to reign in life. Now that tells us how. It tells us how man is supposed to reign in life by two things. The abundance of grace, which can most simply be defined, in my, defi- in my opinion, can most simply be defined as the finished work of Jesus. Because everything Jesus did was as a, pro- as a byproduct or a result of the grace of God. So instead of trying to pick apart grace... And and say, well, grace is this and grace is that. There's a thousand different definitions for grace. And, and very few of them seem to me to impact our thinking or our way of life. But if I look at it in, in terms of the finished work of Jesus, well, that impacts everything. It's all that Jesus paid for. It's all that he sacrificed for. It's all that he accomplished on our behalf. It's the finished work of Jesus. It says much more, he that receives or takes hold of the abundance of grace, the abundance of the finished work of Jesus and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice it does not say, we've said this before, but it bears repetition. It does not say Jesus will reign in you. It's not Jesus that's supposed to reign in the earth. It's you that's supposed to reign in the earth. Jesus is the source of the power, the strength to reign He's the source of the righteousness. He's the source of the abundance of grace. And so, therefore, he is the originator of our ability to reign. But it's you that's supposed to reign. It seems to me, and I, I see this happening more and more the further we go, the idea of grace is being um, spoken of and turned in such a way that many times people are waiting for God to do all the work. We just live by grace and God's supposed to do all the work. I heard uh, of one of the, the most um, uh, well-known grace teachers has recently said we don't have to resist the devil. Jesus will do that for us. Well, really? That means i got to tear some pages out of my Bible then. I'm not willing to do that. No, it's not Jesus that's going to resist the devil for you. It's you that's going to resist the devil for you. And if you don't resist the devil, he won't be resisted. Because Jesus will let you go with whatever you go for. He won't force you into anything. He enables you to do what the Bible says you can do. And that's what this is talking about. He enables you to reign in life, but you're the one that's got to do the reigning. And if you don't reign in life, it won't be his fault. It'll be your fault. It'll be because you didn't take hold of the abundance of the finished work of Jesus and you didn't take hold of the gift of righteousness. But folks, what I want to get across to you this morning is righteousness is about mastery. Everything about righteousness is about dominion. Everything about righteousness is about ruling. Everything about righteousness is about putting the devil underfoot in your life. Everything. Let's keep reading. Skip down into, uh, verse 21. Notice it says that as sin has reigned unto death, still talking about Adam's sin, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, folks, how many people do you know, and I hope you don't fall into this category, but how many people do you know that look at eternal life as beginning when we leave this earth? So many times we regulate eternal life and people do the same thing with righteousness. They regulate that to something that's going to happen when we're done here. Well, folks, redemption is for here. It's not for heaven. And if you don't partake of and take hold of redemption here, you're not going to have anything more in heaven to take hold of. Redemption is for this life. Reigning is for this life. God doesn't need help reigning in heaven. He's got that pretty well taken care of. He doesn't have any enemies in heaven. There's nothing to put underfoot in heaven. There's nothing to reign over in heaven. What are you going to reign over in heaven? Me? I don't think so. That's not the way it works. Righteous people don't reign over righteous people. That's not what righteousness is intended for. Dominion has been perverted to put other people underfoot. That's not what God intended. That's not what God intended when he put Adam here on the earth. He intended for Adam to have Adam as the original man... The beginning of mankind, he had rule over the whole earth, but as Adam's seed expanded and grew and multiplied, those people would have control over their part of the earth until ultimately they'd have control or reign in their own lives, just like we're supposed to do now, not reign over other people. So what is this reigning about? It's about reigning over the works of the devil. It's about reigning over sin. Now, notice when the Bible talks about sin, and we're going to read some of this in verse uh, or chapter six. When when Paul, by the Holy Ghost, talks about sin, he doesn't say sins plural. He's talking about sin singular. Now, usually, not in every case, but in most cases, and it certainly fits in in Romans chapter six. When sin is spoken of in the singular, it's talking about sin as a whole, meaning spiritual death and the byproducts thereof. It's talking about all the works of the devil. When the Bible says Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin, it doesn't say he was made sins, plural. It says he was made sin singular, meaning the whole of sin, the entirety. He took death upon himself. He took the sin nature of man upon himself. He took sickness upon himself. He took the whole package, and that's defined as sin singular. Look at chapter 6. What does Paul conclude? He's telling us that we're supposed to reign. Now, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people just like you and me, people that are saved and filled with the Spirit of God. He's writing to them to try to get something across to them that they must not have either have knowledge of or taking advantage of the knowledge that they have. And what does he say? First of all, he talks lifestyle. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's saying, what should we do then? Because of the finished work of Jesus, can we? should we just live any way we want to live? No, that's not what God planned. Well, why? Because you can't rule over sin if you're living in it. That always goes over real, real well. Notice he says, God forbid, verse 2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead, literally that died, past tense, we that died to sin, live any longer therein? Notice the first thing he tells you about sin. As a believer, as somebody that's made Jesus the Lord of your life, you're dead to sin. You're dead to spiritual death. You're dead to the sin nature. You're dead to sickness. You're dead to all the aspects that sin, Adam's original sin, transgression, opened the door to. You're dead to every bit of it. Now, you may not feel dead to every bit of it because some of it may be operating in your life. But it doesn't change the fact that through Jesus, you died to all of those things. Now, that's an important point. Because it's going to be the key to standing in the place that God intends for you to stand. Verse three. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, not talking about water baptism, he's talking about being saved, talking about being baptized into Christ, spiritual birth, rebirth, spiritual life. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. In other words, there was an exchange. Salvation is all about exchange. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Verse 18 goes on to say, And all things are of God who has reconciled unto him unto us, or us unto him, through the death of his son. Reconciled, we think of reconciled means two people coming back together. And that's a, that's a good definition, but it's incomplete. Reconciled in the Bible means there was an exchange. It means two people were brought together because there was an exchange. You couldn't be brought together with God in a spiritually dead condition. So there had to be an exchange. Death or sin always has to be paid for. And the only payment for sin is death. The only accepted payment for sin is death. So sin had to be paid for. Sin singular had to be paid for. As well as sins plural. And Jesus paid for both. And as a result, he was made to be sin. He became sin. He didn't take sin upon him. He didn't have sin laid upon him like you'd put a cloak on somebody's back. He was made sin. His nature changed. Just as Adam, when he fell in the Garden of Eden, just as his nature changed, he went from life to death. Jesus went from life to death. Now, I know that upsets some people's theology and the idea of how could Jesus die spiritually. Well, he did. I don't have all the answers on how, but he did. I do have the answers on why. He did so that you wouldn't have to die. Because death is the only accepted payment for sin. Somebody had to die for your sin. Either you or Jesus. It's still that way. For every person, every, every human being on the earth, somebody has to die for their sins. They can either pay the price themselves and die... And spend eternity in hell or they can accept Jesus' payment who did die and go to hell in their place. Your choice. And that's every man's choice. That was the exchange. Jesus died in being made death. He died spiritually. He went to the place of the dead. He was completely out of the hands of God. God didn't have a rope around his waist waiting to yank him back. He became death completely. When Jesus died on the cross, and one of the last things he said was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, it's out of my hands now. Up until that point, he could have called the angels to take him down off the cross. He said, no man can take my life. I can lay it down, but I can take it back up again. He had complete control, but at the point where he became sin, completely became sin and death, he said, Father, it's all up to you now. He lost control. He died spiritually. And then he spent three days in the earth. Three days in the earth is a type, or is the fulfillment of the type of the Old Testament scapegoat. On the day of atonement, one of the animals was sacrificed and the blood was offered as a sin offering for Israel. The other goat had, uh, had the sins of Israel pronounced upon his head and sent out into the wilderness where the judgment of God would fall on him out there. He was sent to the, cut off from the land of the living, the Bible says. That's what hell is. It's the place of the dead. The place of the spiritually dead and Jesus had to go there or else his payment wouldn't have counted. Now we might have romantic feelings and think, well, maybe Jesus just went to paradise. Okay, think that if you want to, but if that was the case, he couldn't have paid for death. He couldn't have gone to the place of the righteous dead and paid for death or paid for sin. He had to have been completely consumed with death. Had to have been. Because otherwise there couldn't have been an exchange. There couldn't have been a worthy exchange for you to be able to stand in the presence of God. Now, I know this controversial to some. I know that some people consider that to be heresy. Some people consider that to be blasphemy to consider that Jesus went to hell. Well, okay. how else could he pay for sin? I mean, the Bible says it. You have to discount what the Bible says. Jesus said or the, the Old Testament said "Thou will not leave my soul in hell. It's talking about the place of the dead. The words used is the place of the dead. The Bible says so. But if you discount that, how are you going to explain the price for sin being paid? Because if the price for sin hasn't been paid completely on your behalf, you still got to pay. Whether you accept Jesus or not, you would still have to pay. No, it had to be complete. The payment had to be complete. Now, folks, the reality of this, and here's, I'm learning a lot of things. As a matter of fact, I'm not trying to teach you this morning. I'm just talking about stuff that God's dealing with me about. I don't have any notes. I never have any notes. Rarely have any notes. But I don't even have a plan. I always have a plan. I got no plan. I'm just talking to you about things that God's trying to solidify in my heart. Nothing new, but, boy, I'm sure seeing it in a new way. Sure am seeing it in a new way. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus died spiritually? That means that Jesus was then, had he had to then be born again by the Spirit of God, just like you're born again by the Spirit of God and I am. Think about that. Jesus was born again. He was just as spiritually dead as you were before you found him. He had paid the price for all of mankind's sins completely in those three days in the belly of the earth, in the, the heart of the pit of hell, He paid the price for all of mankind's sin. And then the Bible says he was justified in spirit. That means made alive in spirit. You can't be made alive in spirit unless you're dead in spirit. He had to have been dead spiritually in order to be made alive in spirit. And the Bible says he was made alive in spirit. It says he was justified in spirit. It says he was made alive in spirit. Those are interchangeable terms. And the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And the Bible says it more than twice. Now, you can discount it if you want to, but it's what the Bible says. I'm, I just believe God was smart enough to say what he meant. I certainly don't believe you'd leave it in the hands of modern-day theologians to tell us what he means. Dear God, what a mess that would be. So Jesus had to die spiritually. But he was made alive in spirit. That means righteousness was given back to him when he had lost his own. Now, what do we see? We see a picture of Jesus in hell. And all of a sudden, the life of God comes back upon Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, Father, I'm just so unworthy. I mean, look at me. I've been made deaf. Not of my own doing, but... Goodness gracious, how could I ever expect to stand in your presence again? No, Jesus' righteousness is of God just like your righteousness is of God. You have the same righteousness that Jesus had. Jesus doesn't have righteousness because he lived righteously. He gave that up on the cross. You've got the same righteousness that he has because it was given to him by God. And that's the righteousness that includes dominion. That's the righteousness that, that 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 is based entirely in reigning in life and reigning over the works of the devil. You're not one iota less righteous than Jesus is because you have his righteousness. Well, Pastor Mike, I've just never looked at it that way. Yeah, that's why we're not reigning in life. Because there's a taking hold of the gift of righteousness that's involved, not just making Jesus the Lord of your life. Dear Lord, if making Jesus the Lord of your life was the key to reigning in life, then the church would be powerful. Instead of this meek, measly group of people that says, well, you just never know what God's going to do. Lord, whatever your will is, devil, just have your way. I don't know why God's letting this happen to me. I'm sure that warms God's heart to look at the church saying, no, there's my kids. What are you doing? Now, there's a taking hold. There's a taking hold. There's, it's not just a matter of receiving it. There's a taking hold that's necessary. There's a new way of thinking. You are a new creature. Folks, let me tell you, you cannot have the devil's nature and be a new creature. You either are a new creature or you are not a new creature in Christ Jesus. Either being born again makes you righteous or it keeps you in spiritual death. One of the two. You can't have a mixture of those. This idea that, well, I'm saved but I've still got the sin nature. No, you do not. The sin nature is the nature of the devil. You're telling me God is going to cohabit with the devil? Not a chance. You are either made righteous by the blood of Jesus or you're not. And it's some fairy tale that some people are expecting to happen when we get to heaven. Well, think about that. If righteousness only comes when we come, when we leave this earth and get to heaven, that means our righteousness is dependent on physical death that Satan is the author of. So righteousness therefore is not based in the blood of Jesus by that line of thinking. It's not based in the blood of Jesus. It's based on physical death that Satan is the originator of. Then we'll be made righteous. Well, how? How is death, how is physical death going to change you in any way whatsoever? Well, it'll do away with this body. Yeah? You mean the one you're supposed to rule and reign over? Folks, that's a cop-out. Well, how about when Jesus comes back for us and we receive our redeemed body? Great. So you're saying that your redemption is based on the rapture and not the blood of Jesus. See, we don't think in those terms. We don't think these things out when we have these thoughts and accept these religious thoughts. But that's what it would mean. Folks, if redemption is based in anything other than the blood of Jesus, then Jesus didn't pay the price necessary to pay. Do you hear what I'm saying? I didn't ask you or you get it. It takes a while to get it. I, I understand that. But are you at least hearing what I'm saying to have something to think on? Okay, let's go back to Romans 6. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death. That means when you're baptized into Christ, again, he's not talking about water baptism, although this is what water baptism is a type of. Going down into the water is a symbol of being uh, the, the old man dying with Jesus and then coming out as a symbol of the resurrection. Not being raised from the dead through the rapture or raised after we die on the earth, but the new life we have now. But he's talking about Spiritual birth. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into Christ. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That just like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, that's the righteousness that we receive. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Why? Because you've got the same righteousness that he got. The righteousness he got was not his own. He gave that up. That's what he sacrificed. The righteousness he got was of God. When God said, the price is paid, be born again, live. I don't know how he said it. It's not important to me. But the Bible says he was justified and made alive in spirit. Just like you were. Same life because it was the same death. For if we've been planted together, planted means buried. In the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, folks, don't let the word likeness throw you. He's talking about the same thing. He's saying just like you've got the same death as Jesus had, or Jesus had the same death as you had, you've got the same resurrection or the same newness of life that Jesus has. That's what he's saying. That's what likeness means. It means the same thing, not something similar to the same thing. Verse 6, knowing this, here's the problem. Here's what people don't know. The reason Paul is writing this is so they'll know it. Knowing this, that our old man, now the old man was the sin nature, the nature of the devil that came upon us because of Adam's sin, that came upon all of mankind, that caused us to be spiritually dead. So the old man is literally spiritual death. For the old man is, literally was, crucified with him that the body of, de- of sin might be destroyed. The word destroyed means to put out of business. That the body of sin, the flesh, might be put out of business, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For the, he that is dead, literally, hath died. He that hath died is freed from sin. How many of you has, hath died? I know that's bad English, but you get the point. How many of you hath died? Then you're freed from sin. That is his point. Why don't we live free from sin? Cause we don't know that. Even if we've heard it, we don't really know it. We don't accept it. We don't meditate on it. We don't let it become real in our lives. Like, wait a minute. I am freed from sin. Again, that's sin singular. That means sin, sickness, poverty. It means everything. You're freed from sin. You're freed from the from the the the, the need, the, the not the desire, but the need to obey sin because you don't have the devil's nature anymore. You're freed from sickness because it's a product of spiritual death. You're free from poverty because it's a product of spiritual death. Why? Because you have died. Oh, you're not gonna be free. You were freed. Getting to heaven won't make you more free than than you are now. Going up in the rapture won't make you any more free than you are now. It may remove some of the desires that your body has. But that's not sin nature. That's just your body's experience with sin. Verse 8, now if we be dead, literally died, this is past tense. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Notice what he's saying. He's saying life, the life of God in us comes through faith. We believe that we also live with him. That means in order to take hold of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, you've got to believe it's yours now. Now what's believing all about? Believing is accepting the truth in your heart and saying it with your mouth. And that's the only way you're ever going to get there. You're going to have to start looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, I have dominion over sin, death and sickness. And the first time you say it, it may come out as a whisper and you may have to avert your eyes away from your own self. But the more you say it and the more it becomes real on the inside of you, the more you can look in the devil's eyes and say, I have dominion over you. Now, the few people in the earth in the body of Christ over the history of, of the church that have taken hold of this, we've looked at them as, as supermen. Wow, look at the exploits they did. And it's the natural way that we're supposed to live. But it's become such a foreign idea, a foreign concept to so many people. That when somebody does step up and exercise dominion in their life over sin, sickness and and disease and poverty, then we look at them and say, wow, they must have something extra. No, they just took hold of what they have, what all of us have. We read of people laying hands on the sick And setting them free. We read of people that that cast out devils. We read of people that bring people back from the dead. And we think, whoa, they've got something extra from God. No, they've got the gift of righteousness and they take hold of the abundance of, of the finished work of Jesus. That's why Jesus told everybody to do the same works he did. He didn't say, now you special few. No, it's supposed to be a common thing. The church is supposed to be going through the world, seeing people in trouble and setting them free. Not stopping and having a meeting over it. Just setting people free on their normal course of daily activity. Why? Because we have died with Christ. We died with Christ and therefore we have dominion over sin, death and poverty. Sickness and poverty. Folks, you're the best crowd in the world. I hope you know that but even with you it's like brother Hagin used to talk about r- throwing a rubber ball against the, a rubber ball against the back wall and coming back hitting you in the face <laughs> you can see it you can just see it i'm being bombarded with rubber balls <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to accept i get that but it's true and the way you accept things that are hard to understand or hard for our under, our our mental Capacity to accept is that you begin to accept because the Bible says so and say them about yourself. That's the only way you break through the barriers in your mind. You have to start saying what's true. And I'll prove it to you. He's going to say exactly the same thing here. Verse 9. Knowing. Here's something else you're supposed to know. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. There's not any more work to be done. Jesus died once, just like you did. There's no more dying to sin. That means there's no more sacrifice to be made for sin. Now, folks, this is where the majority of the religions of the world have started. The majority of the religions on the face of the earth that have ever existed on the face of the earth have come from a sin consciousness. A consciousness in the, on the part of mankind, that we don't stand before God open and without guilt. And so what do we do? Mankind has devised all these systems of what, you, what rules you have to keep and what actions you have to take so that you can be okay with God. And none of them work. And so what does mankind do? Mankind prays and agonizes in prayer. He goes to church. He fasts. He gives money. He deprives himself of pleasures, thinking that's going to make God happy. He does everything he can think to do, and even in some cases, people flog themselves. What are they doing? They're trying to get rid of the consciousness of guilt because of sin. And nothing works. And what do Christians do? Christians give their hearts to Jesus and never conquer the consciousness of guilt and sin. When it's been paid for all along. Now, what are they supposed to do? They do the same things. They go to church. They pay their tithes. They they do everything, good works, everything they think God would be happy with. And that never does it for them either. Because you can't work your way into doing the things of God or standing in in, uh, right standing with God. You can't work yourself there no matter what you do. Even doing the right thing won't put you in that place. There's only one thing that will put you in that place, and that is knowing that Jesus paid the price, knowing that you died with Him. That's it. That's taking hold of the abundance of grace. That's taking hold of the abundance of the finished work of Jesus. If you don't know that the work is finished, if you don't know that you died with Jesus, that you died his death, he died your death, you were made righteous with his righteousness, the same righteousness that he received from God, you received from God, you'll never overcome the consciousness of guilt. Never. And that's the one thing that keeps people's prayers from being answered. It's the one thing that keeps him out of fellowship with God. It's the one thing that keeps him from reigning in life. And there's only one way out of it, and that is to take hold of who you are as the righteousness of God in Christ. Knowing this, that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more. He's not going back to hell for one more second. Now, he didn't go to hell for himself. He went to hell for you. That means there's nothing you can do that's going to send him back to hell for one more second. That means there's not one action that you can take or one sin that you can commit that will ever cause Jesus to have to pay one second more of a penalty. It's already paid. So it's not dependent on your actions. It's dependent on what Jesus did. Making sense? That's what he's saying. Knowing this, that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no dominion over him. Death hath no more dominion over him. Death did have dominion over him for a while, for those three days. He was caught in the clutches of death. He was just as helpless as you are without him. But then the price was paid. Claims of justice were satisfied, and the voice of heaven shook hell by the core. And Jesus was justified in spirit. He was made alive in spirit. He was the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was born again in the pit of hell. And then He took the keys of hell and death. What are we supposed to do with this? This is good information. You might leave here today and say, well, Pastor Mike was wound up today, wasn't he? (laughs) How does that help you? What difference is that going to make to your life? What are we supposed to do with this information? Notice verse 11. Likewise. Likewise. In other words, in the same way that Jesus is not dying anymore and death has no more dominion over him. In the same way, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now, the word reckon is a very, very simple word. It's not a southern word. He's not saying reckon like we'd say I reckon back in the south. Reckon means this. It means to accept to be true that which is an established reality. Likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Accept that you are dead to sin because it's a reality. Accept in the same way that Jesus is dead to sin because he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the pit of hell. He was raised from the place of the spiritually dead. He was raised from the spiritual death that held him in bondage for those three days. And he couldn't escape. But once the price was paid, the life of God came back upon him. The gift of righteousness was given to him just like it's given to you and me. And death lost its power. In the same way, except to be true, because it is true, that you also are dead to sin. Sin, singular, spiritual death and all of its works, sickness, poverty, and and so forth. You're dead to those things just as much as Jesus is. Now, if you see yourself held by those things, you're not reckoning yourself to be dead to them. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, sickness is attacking my body. Well, I feel your pain. But that doesn't change what's true. If sickness is attacking our bodies, that does not mean we're not dead to sin or sickness. We are dead to sin and sickness because of what Jesus did. That means the same Spirit of God that dwells in us, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of righteousness, quickens or makes alive our physical bodies just like it quickened Jesus in spirit and drives out sickness. Yeah, but I don't see it yet. We'll just keep watching. You will see it. You'll see it in you. You'll see it in me. If we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. That's taking hold of the abundance of grace, the abundance of the finished work of Jesus. That's taking hold of the gift of righteousness that's been given to us. Now, you can ignore those things. You can ignore the gift of righteousness just like most of the church does and say, well, I just don't know. I guess I just never will overcome the sin nature. (laughs) Okay, your choice. I'm not going to live there. I've been there. There is no future in that place. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves dead to sin, indeed, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is that going to do? It'll keep, verse 12, sin from reigning in your mortal body. In other words, what you reckon, what you accept to be true, determines the degree that sin will affect you in this life. Notice verse 14. As a result of what Jesus did, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Singular. He's not talking about sins. He's not talking about lying, cheating, and stealing. Now, those are byproduct of sin. Singular. Spiritual death. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law. King James says the law. It's literally law. You're not under law, any kind of law, law of Moses or any other kind of law, but you're under grace. You're under the finished work of Jesus. What was the finished work of Jesus? He died to death. And as a result, the life of God, the gift of righteousness came back to him, and he no longer is subject to spiritual death or any of the byproducts thereof. Sickness, poverty, disease, sins, plural, or anything else. And that's what you're supposed to see yourself as. Wouldn't it be silly if we prayed and said, Lord, I know that sin is a real difficult issue. Tell me how you handle it. If he talked to you at all, he'd say, I dealt with that. And righteousness came back upon me. Now it's not an issue. Let me prove something to you. Turn with me back to Ephesians chapter uh, 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we looked at this a couple of weeks back. Ephesians chapter 1, it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who half, past tense, half blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Folks, that cannot possibly be true unless Jesus finished the work. If there is any part of the work of, of, of the payment for spiritual death left undone, there is no way he could bless us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. If anything's left that physical death and us going to heaven it will accomplish, or if anything's left that, that getting our redeemed bodies in the rapture is going to accomplish, then he would have said he, was, he has blessed us with a lot of spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, but not all. Because there's still things to come. That's not what It says. It says He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That means everything has been done. The work has been paid. Or the price has been paid. The work has been finished. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that doesn't mean before Adam and Eve. That means before God made the heaven and the earth. As He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God decided before He ever made the earth... Before he ever made the angels, before he ever made the universe, he decided, I'm going to create a people that are going to be holy and without blame because I love them. The next word, the next verse, having predestinated us under the adoption of sons. What does that mean? That means this was what God predestined you. You hear a lot of talk about predestination. Well, what is predestination all all about? As far as the Bible is concerned, predestination is God predestined you to be righteous. Now whether you are, whether you are or not depends on whether you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But God predestined mankind to be righteous. It's not His choice anymore. He made His choice. Notice it said He chose us. The question is, do we choose Him? And nothing God can do can change your choice. You choose. You've been given authority. But he chose you to be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, hold your finger. We're going to go to chapter 5. Well, turn to chapter 5 and hold your finger here. And then turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see two verses of Scripture real quick together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Here's this mutual exchange. He brought you together because Jesus died. He became sin for us. Sin, literally spiritual death. And you hath he reconciled. How? In the body of his flesh through death. Again, he's not talking about physical death alone. He's talking about spiritual death. In the body of his flesh, through death, for what purpose? To present you holy and unblameable. The word unblameable is the same word without blame in chapter one of Hebrew of, of uh, Ephesians. What is it? Ephesians one, four, five, something like that. Same phrase. Paul talking about the same phrase. God predestinated you to be holy and without blame before him in love. How did he do that? How did he bring that about? By the death of Jesus, not his physical death on the cross alone. That was important. But it's also through his spiritual death, the three days he spent in hell paying the price for sin. Singular. Literally spiritual death. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable. I like the word unreprovable. It means without accusation. Folks, let me tell you something. When you accept that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, I don't mean mentally, but I mean it really dawns on the heart. When it becomes real in your spirit, there's no accusation Satan can make. Yeah, but you messed up. Yeah, but I'm righteous. How's he answer that? Well, you can't be righteous. If you were righteous, you wouldn't do the stuff you did. Well, sure. That doesn't change the fact that I've been made righteous. Righteousness is not an experience. It's a condition. Folks, I've got a spiritual condition. I've got a heart condition. That heart condition is righteousness. And nothing the devil does, nothing that I do can change that. That condition will last throughout eternity. But what if you stumble and fall? Then I confess my failure. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm still righteous. So where's Satan's accusation? What's he going to say? Oh, you, you messed up and didn't confess that? Oh, thanks for reminding me. Father, forgive me. Really? You think he wants to get in that conversation with you? There's no accusation. Unreprovable, without accusation. In his sight. Now turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Notice it tells us the work of Jesus. Verse 26, it says that he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the washing of water by the word, to what end? What is the purpose for us being washed, cleansed? He's not talking about cleansed spiritually. We're already saved. Cleansing has to do with the renewing of the mind. It has to do with thinking right thoughts. I've been having a lot of tests done. went to a neurologist not too long ago, and uh, they did an MRI on my brain. They're all concerned about this tremor and stuff like that that's going on. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. It's an attack on my vanity, not my health. That's true. Anyway, I went to the neurologist and uh, they did an MRI and he uh, sent the results to the neurologist. So I'm sitting in the office. He said, well, he said, Mike, he said, uh, I'm kind of concerned about something. You got a hole in your brain. I said, really? He said, yeah. He told me how big it was, about the size of a ballpoint pen. He said, you got a hole in your brain. I said, oh, doc, don't worry about that. That's just the exit spout for wrong thoughts. He was not amused. (laughs) Of course, they don't know. I could have been born that way. And if that was the case, it's my mom's fault. (laughs) They don't know. They're practicing. They're trying. You know, they don't know. It's no big deal. The point is, the washing of the water is supposed to cleanse your thinking. So that you think right according to the word of God, to think according to righteousness instead of unrighteousness, to think according to life instead of death, to think according to health instead of sickness, to think abundance instead of lack. That's what the washing of the water with the word is supposed to be. That's why the word of God is something that we're supposed to meditate on to cleanse our thinking, literally change our thinking to think in line with what God says. That he might present it a glorious uh, verse twenty six that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word to this end verse twenty seven that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. blemish is the same word blame, holy and without blame before him in love. three times the Bible says that God intends and is predestined for you to be holy and without blame. The work of Jesus has presented you or provided for you to be holy and without blame. And the washing of the word, the renewing of the mind is to present you a life that is exemplified in righteousness, holy and without blame. God must be serious about this stuff, folks. Jesus not only did it, but he gave us the word so that we'd know, so that we'd walk in it, we'd live it. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter fifty four. I'm going to start reading in verse uh, verse thirteen, just because I like it. Verse fourteen is really where I want to start, but I like verse thirteen, so I'm going to read it. It says, "And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of de- thy children." Let me let me speak to the parents for, here for a second. This does not say all your children shall be taught about the Lord. It's a good thing to teach your kids about the God about the Lord. But that's not what it says. It says, all your children shall be taught of the Lord. In other words, we do our part to tell our kids about the Lord, to raise them up, to train them up in the way they should go. But the Bible says some of them are going to depart, but they'll come back. Proverbs is kind of really is not a good translation. It says, train up a child in the way they should go. And when he's depart, when he's old, he shall not depart from it. That's not what it says. It says, and if he departs, he'll return. See, a lot of parents have kids that have departed from the Lord and they're thinking, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? Nothing. If you taught them about Jesus, if you put them on the right path, some kids just find out the hard way. But they will return. Here, this is and all your children shall be taught of the Lord. That means God does the teaching. Now, you may be in a situation where your kids, teenagers, young adults, whatever they are. They're out there and you're concerned about them and you're thinking, well, Lord, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Confess this scripture over them. Say, thank you, Lord, that you're teaching my kids. And don't believe that false front they put on saying everything's great. You know that when they lay down at night, God attacks them. Because your kids are taught of the Lord. And all your children shall be taught of the Lord And great shall be the peace of thy children. Here's the result of being taught of the Lord. My confession about my kids is they wind up in great peace because God teaches them. Now, I'm going to do my part and teach them this idea that I've just turned them over to the Lord. Well, unless they're adults, you can't turn them over to the Lord. They're your responsibility. But once they are adults, if they go out on their own way, I can trust God to to get them and bring them back. Teach them whatever they need to know. Now, granted... Learning the easy way would be great. But we didn't all learn the easy way, did we? I didn't know enough to learn the easy way. I think our kids have an advantage that we didn't have when we were younger. Because I didn't know. Nobody told me I could live a a righteous and victorious life. Man, I thought it was all this suffering for Jesus stuff. Gee, that sounded fun to me as a teenager. (laughs) Give your heart to the Lord. Miss out on everything fun and suffer. Hallelujah. (laughs) But our kids know better. But even if they go their own way, you can expect and believe God to be the one that teaches them. And the end result, great shall be the peace of your children. Okay, verse 14. In righteousness shalt thou be established. The word uh, established means to stand upright and to stand firm. It literally means to be unmovable. In righteousness, you shall be unmovable. If you're not unmovable, folks, let me clue you in. It's because you don't understand the righteousness of God that you've been made. If you're being shaken by finances or the lack thereof, if you're being shaken by sickness, if you're being shaken by any attack of the devil, it's because you don't know who you are in Christ. Now you can fix that, but only you can. In righteousness thou shalt be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression. That means pressure. Folks, when you know who you are in Christ, when you begin to walk in who you are in Christ, being made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, life's fun. Doesn't mean you don't have challenges. Doesn't mean you don't have things come against you. But you've got the answer. You've got the victory. And even if the victory is slow in coming or seems to be slow in coming, you can enjoy the ride. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. God said over and over again, I'm with you. Don't be afraid of who's against you. Paul said it this way, if God be for us, who can be against us? Brother Hagin used to quote that and say, I always like to say it like this. If God be for me, who do I care is against me? What does it matter? That's true. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror. Thou shalt be far from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is a terrorism scripture here. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. That means oppression will come, but it won't take hold of me. Terror may come, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Here's God speaking to you and for you. Whoever gathers together against you, they'll fall. Oh, it just looks like so many things are coming against me. Don't worry. It'll all fall. Verse 16. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waste to destroy. You know what that means? There's no way you could know what that means from that verse. (laughs) Thank you, King James translators. You know what they got from this? Literally, you know why the translators did what they did? Because their one thought is God creates the waster to destroy. Can I read this to you from the Septuagint? That's the Bible of Jesus' day. Verse 16. Behold, I have created thee, not as the coppersmith blowing coals, and bringing out a vessel fit for work. But I have created thee, not for ruin that I should destroy thee. Now, of course, you understood that from the King James, right? (laughs) Folks, translations are not always anointed. The word is God's original plan, God's original thought, his original voice is anointed. And what is he saying? He's saying, I'm the one that created thee. That's why everybody that gathers against you will fall. I created you. Not like a coppersmith would use a a blacksmith's tool and, and hammer out something with his hands. I created you. The implication is, because I created you, who can destroy you? I'm certainly not going to do it, God said. I didn't create you for ruin. What did he create you for? He created you for victory. He's going to point that out in the next verse, verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Now, here's how we read this. Some weapons that are formed against us won't prosper. No, no weapon formed against thee shall prosper. Now, this is the context that God's talking about. He's saying, I'm the one that created you. I'm the one that took care of you. I'm the one that looks out after you. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Well, if sickness is coming against you, is it going to work? Is it going to win? If poverty is coming against you, is it going to win? No weapon formed against you. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, the doctor, says this is something he's never seen before. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Yeah, but I've just never been attacked like this before. Well, that's why he said no weapon formed against you shall prosper. He didn't say no weapon that you've experienced before will prosper. He said no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Folks, do you realize that if the Bible means what it says, there is nothing the devil can do to overtake you. But remember, that's part of reigning in life. It all comes down to the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace. Finished work of Jesus. You taking hold of those things. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall come against thee shall rise against thee in judgment. You shall condemn. Sounds like you've got a part in that. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now, can I ask you who that was written to? Anybody want to take a guess at that? Who's this written to? Wasn't it written to Israel? Hello? Wasn't it written to Israel? Wasn't Isaiah a prophet to Israel? Yeah, but this belongs to the church. No, it doesn't. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Are you a servant? The Bible says you're a son. Now, folks, let me wrap this up. I know I'm out of time. Let me wrap this up real quick. This is what belonged to those that served God under the law. This is what belonged to God whose righteousness was imputed year by year by year by year by year through the day of atonement, the keeping of the sacrifice. And under that system. God said, nobody can take you away from me. Nobody can bring destruction on you because I'm on your side. You shall be established in righteousness, unmovable because of my righteousness, the righteousness that is of me that comes year by year by year by year as you keep the day of atonement sacrifice. Do you do that? Any of you raising a lamb for this year's sacrifice? Thank God we don't have to. This is not for you. This was for them. Now it shows us the, the principle. It shows us the attitude of God. And I love the fact that God is saying, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me. Now, how could they be righteous? How could God impute righteousness to them even in one year at a time? They were spiritually dead. How is it possible? These people were sinning constantly. Didn't even care because they were making sacrifices all over the place. Their life was one big sacrifice. The whole law was to, to, to show them that your life revolves around sacrifices at the temple. Everything was about it. How long did you, They didn't go a week without having to offer another sacrifice. Some of it was blood. Some of it was meal. Some of it was grain and different stuff like that. But there's always a sacrifice. I mean, your calendar is filled with got to go to the temple and sacrifice today. The whole purpose was to show them, to prove to them your life is surrounded or your life surrounds a sacrifice and without that you are toast. So what did they do? They lived their lives, maybe tried to keep the law some, some not so much. Knowing full well that they had righteousness, Coming to him on the day of atonement. All they had to do was offer the sacrifice. Here's the point I'm trying to get to. Those that had a promise of the Messiah. And kept the law because of it. Which was what the law of Moses was all about. The sacrifices were all pointing to the one to come. Everybody understood that. They may not have understood how all of it tied together. But everybody under the law of Moses understood that it was pointing to the Messiah. Someday a Messiah is coming and we won't have to do this stuff anymore. Everybody understood that. Rabbis were real clear about teaching that. Those that had a promise of the Messiah had the blessing of righteousness and therefore victory. That's why when Jesus was here on the earth as a righteous man, a man without sin, he was simply able to take those that believed on him, believe that he was the Messiah and delegate authority to them. He gave his disciples power over sickness and disease. How in the world could they have power over sickness and disease? There was not a righteous part of them. They were under the law of Moses. Not really too great about keeping it. That was one of the the complaints about the religious leaders of the day. Look at your disciples. They don't keep the law of Moses. Jesus said, they're sticking with me. And what did they get for sticking with him? Power over sickness And disease, power to cast out devils, they got signs and wonders and miracles in their lives. Now, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 came to Jesus and said, Master, we know you come from God because nobody can do the miracles you do unless God be with him. So what does that tell us? That tells us when the disciples were doing signs and wonders and miracles, healings and, and getting people delivered from the power of the devil, they were doing miraculous things too because God was with them. How in the world could God be with them? They weren't righteous. There was nothing about them that was righteous. What did Jesus say? He said, whosoever believeth on me hath eternal life. The fact that they were willing to follow him and believe in him gave them power before his sacrifice was ever made, gave them power over sickness and disease and the devil. if you can have that just by believing in Jesus when he was here on the earth before he made the sacrifice, what do you think is available for those that have accepted Jesus after the sacrifice is made? And now it's not just a promise of righteousness to come, but we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not what Israel had. It's not just no weapon formed against thee shall prosper because I'm giving them righteousness based on a yearly plan. No, now we've been made righteous. You think that would be less victory, less dominion than they had as servants or more. Here's the bottom line. A redemption that does not restore man back to his original dominion and fellowship with God and make them sons of God is not worthy of the sacrifice Jesus made. And that's exactly what you have. You have restored dominion. You have fellowship with God. And you are now the sons of God. Now, when God says the righteousness is of me, he doesn't have to declare it as giving it to us year by year or installments in installments. Now he declares it just as I've made my son righteous because he paid the price for death and sin. So have I made them righteous. Much more. They which receive the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you'll feel like you've got dominion. And that's what we all look for. And, folks, I I am so ashamed of myself. No matter how long I preach this, no matter how many years I've been doing this, no matter how real it is to me, it'll be more real tomorrow than it is today, but still. We all are subject to looking for feelings. Last Sunday night, I did this very thing. I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but i got to tell you. Last Sunday night, we had a lady come to uh, healing school. She must have been in her 80s. Sweet little lady, beautiful woman. She and her husband had been in the ministry for many years, and he had uh, since gone home to be with the Lord, and she's blind in her right eye. She came up, and the, the, the only way I'd guess how old she is is there was a, a lady that was with her that was helping her. She was holding on to her elbow. She came up, and she said, uh, uh, and we were teaching on faith in the name of Jesus. Didn't lay hands on anybody. Didn't have a healing line. That really ticks a lot of people off when they come to healing school. They're expecting I'm going to do something, and I teach them how to believe God. But anyway, she came up after the service. And uh, and so she told me the story. She said, "I'm blind in my right eye." She started to cry and all this kind of stuff. Talked to her a little bit about faith, just real short. She said, "I've always believed God in healing." I said, "Well, that's great. You're believing God in a general way. Now believe God specifically. What does the Bible say about blind eyes?" So we, I reminded her of some scriptures that the Bible says about Jesus bringing recovering of sight to the blind, that kind of stuff. She said, "I had I'd forgotten that." So I just gave her you know, 45 seconds worth of the Bible. And so I laid hands on her and I said, all right, now here's here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay hands on you. and I'm going to command your eye to be opened. I said, uh, your job is to believe God for that healing. I said, now, it may happen instantly. But I said, if it doesn't, it doesn't change what you're supposed to believe. And I explained about confessing, continuing to say, I believe I received my healing. So I laid hands on a sweet little old lady, laid my hands on her right here, just laid my hands on her. Step back, said a simple prayer, commanded it to be open. In the name of Jesus, stepped back. She stood there for about a minute. She's just kind of looking. I'm kind of looking. She's crying a little bit. And so then I said, uh, okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to look over on that wall. I want you to read what's on the wall over there. Cover your good eye. So she did. She covered her good eye and she looked over there. Another 30, 40 seconds went by. Something like that seemed like a long time. I'm just standing there grinning at her. She looks back at me like, you're going to do something else? You know? I'm thinking, hey, I've done my part. This is God's deal now. So she stands there, after about thirty or forty five seconds, she starts reading the, the she reads the first word home off that off that thing. Then she starts crying. Oh, she starts crying. And I said, Stop crying and read. <laughs> God already knows you cry, read. So she stood there and for another 30 or 45 seconds went by. Then she started reading the rest of it. And then she came undone. She came undone. So I said, all right, let me ask you a question. Do I understand that you couldn't have done that when she came in? She said, oh, no, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see anything. Well, her eye opened up. And then I told her, you you don't have to take my word for it. There were ushers standing around, other people standing around, too. They saw the same thing. Everybody was listening. I told her, I said, now, you keep confessing, saying when I said, I believe I receive healing for my eye in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that I'm healed. You keep confessing that, your eye will get better and better and better every day. You'll get to the place where the sight in this eye will probably be better than the other eye. She said, do you really think so? And I said, no, I don't think so. I know so. She walked away, and I'm thinking, praise God, that's a miracle. And I didn't feel a thing. See, we're all looking to feel something. Folks, I'm just as natural as you are. I want there to be lightning when I lay hands on somebody. (laughs) I want people to say, wow, look at him. We all want that. When we say, Satan, I take authority over you, we want to feel it. Yeah. That's not the way it works. It doesn't work by feeling. It works simply by doing from your heart what the Bible says do. You have authority over sin, sickness, and poverty. Already. You've already been freed from those things. You have authority over it. It's up to you to exercise that authority. Don't look for a feeling when you do it. Now, you can work yourself up into a lather and do it with a lot of gusto, and that's not going to make any difference. Because what you feel about it or what you don't feel about it doesn't make a bit of difference in the world. It's the exercise of the authority that we have because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, that we are dead to sin. Help us, Holy Spirit, to reckon ourselves as such. To accept to be true that which is an established reality. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that as we take hold of the abundance of what Jesus has accomplished and the gift of righteousness, that we have been made righteous Not going to be, but are righteous now. I thank you, Father, that we shall reign in life. I thank you that we shall do exploits in the name of Jesus. I thank you that signs and wonders and miracles shall glorify his name and that many shall be set free. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen. If you can agree with that, say amen with me. Praise the Lord. Well, don't forget our regular schedule of services. Tonight at 5 o'clock is prayer school. 6 o'clock is healing school. Have a great day. And we'll see you then.